Hello, my name is Dr. Deborah Fur Holden and welcome to At The Forefront. Today I decided to share with you a speech that I gave at the Michigan State University Student National Medical Association Annual Banquet in 2018 called Unapologetically Me. I gave this speech because two African-American medical students I mentor asked me to give the keynote at their annual banquet. Student National Medical Association is a safe place for minority medical students to support each other and to one another. I was so moved that they asked me to give the keynote, I decided to pull the curtain back and share in a way that I had not shared publicly before. Today I decided to share this story with you and the world in the hopes that you might find courage, strength, and insight for your own life. When I was six years old, I started first grade. I was in a busing program born out of a landmark Supreme Court case, Milliken versus Bradley, that sought to desegregate schools. This case was originally filed in Detroit, 1974, the same year I was born. In Maryland, what Milliken translated to was taking a very small cohort of young black children each year from the working poor black communities, um, which included my hometown of Sea Pleasant, Maryland. And we were bused to a then all white, wealthier suburb, Bowie, Maryland. My brother was in the cohort of this desegregation plan the year before me. My first day of first grade, my mother brushed my hair and put it in my favorite style, a big bush ball on top of my head with a red ribbon, I wore my favorite red and blue striped t-shirt. We ate breakfast and mom walked my brother and me to the bus stop one block from our house. A few minutes later, I boarded a big yellow school bus with 20 of my neighborhood friends for the 30 minute ride that I would take every day for the next eight years. All the first graders were assembled in the cafeteria and I looked around, excited to make new friends and get my bearings as a big girl. The girl sitting next to me at the cafeteria table was about my height and had reddish brown hair and a really pale, really pale, thin looking skin. I'd never before been so close to someone who looked like her. I was intrigued, but I didn't want to stare. Well, she must have been intrigued too because I caught her staring at me in my hair. After a few minutes of awkward not staring at each other, she reached her hand up and touched my hair. She said, your hair is so cool. I never had anyone say, say that to me. My mother used to call on the Lord combing through my long, thick, nappy hair. All my cousin's hair was even thicker than mine. Every little girl in my family had hair something like mine. In my world, I had ordinary hair. After a brief pause, I simply said, thank you. My name is Debbie, what's your name? She replied, my name is Susie, Susie Meyer. I didn't notice at the time, but I was the only non-white student in the cafeteria that day. And I ended up being the only black student in my grade until sixth grade, when a wealthy black family moved to Bowie. Susie would become my best friend in first grade. We sat next to each other in class. We played together at recess. We sat together at lunch. She was my very best friend. At the end of the year, Susie invited me to her house for a swim party. I agreed and asked if I could bring one of my friends from my neighborhood, Tamika. 
Now, Tamika lived on the other side of the highway and wasn't in the busing program, but she was one of the girls I played with when I got home from the 30-minute ride from Bowie back to Sea Pleasant. Susie says, sure. Susie's mom called my mom and the date was set. My mom took me shopping. I got a new swimsuit. Before we left the house, she parted my hair in four sections like she used to do every Sunday when I got my hair washed, conditioned, and brushed out in preparation for the week. She braided me up in four long plaits and told me unequivocally not to take my hair out. She had shifted the Sunday ritual to Saturday so I could go be with my best friend that she had heard so much about and met only one time at back-to-school night. We left the house. We crossed George Parma Highway and picked up Tamika. We took that same 30-minute drive that I had taken all year long to school. Only this time, my mom had the radio on, and we sang songs that we love, and the ride went by pretty fast. And then we arrived. We made it to Susie's house. As Tamika and I got out of the car, my mom told us, girls, mind your manners. And of course, in my traditional upbringing, I responded with the only acceptable answer. Yes, ma'am. Tamika simply jumped out of the car and ran up to the door of what I can only describe as a Huxtable house on steroids. Susie Meyer lived in a house that I had at that point in my life only seen on TV. It was a large two-story single family home with a big yard and a huge front door. There were beautiful shrubs and flowers out front and five numbers on the plate beside the door. Her house address had five numbers in it. I sat in the car for a second and my wonderful mother with all of her motherly goodness sensed my hesitance. She got out with me and walked up to the door. Susie's mother met us with a smile and open arms. The moms exchanged a few words and my mama looked at me and asked, baby, are you okay? And I was, so again, I simply replied, yes, ma'am. She hugged me and made her way down the hallway, the walkway, and back to our 1970-something Chevy Nova, and she left. I stood in this grand entryway of Susie Meyer's Huxtable house, and Susie quickly grabbed me and Tamika by the hand and ran us up to her room. Her room was painted yellow. She had a big canopy bed with lace trim. It was beautiful. Her closet door was open and it was filled with beautiful dresses and 10 or more pairs of shoes. I shared my room with my brother in the same three bedroom house my mother grew up in that now housed my mother, stepfather, grandfather, brother, and any relatives on hard times at that moment. My house was attached to the house next door to it and both of those houses could fit inside of Susie Meyer's house twice. I got a new dress and a pair of dress shoes every Easter and one pair of tennis shoes for the start of the school year. I had a great life and I love school shopping and the annual buying of the Easter dress and shoes. I just couldn't believe Susie had a closet full of dresses. It was the first time in my life that I ever thought I was less than or lacking something. I shook it off and we ran downstairs down a grand staircase through a large eating kitchen, through the patio door and headed out back to the pool. 
Susie ushered Tamika and I to the small pool house they used as a staging area to change for swimming. It was here she insisted I undo my braids so we could play a game where we float in the pool and our hair makes a big web on top of the water. I could hear my mama's voice. Don't take your hair down. But I was eight. I wanted to have fun with my best friend at her house. After all, the school year was over. I got straight A's. It's summertime. And I wanted to have a little fun and literally let my hair down. So I did. Susie and I untwisted my plaits and I jumped in the pool. We had a great time on that warm summer day. We splashed and swam and did what little girls do. After a few hours, Susie's mom called us in for lunch. When we came inside, Susie's mom screeched in terror. Susie, Debbie, what did you do? My perfectly plaited, long braided hair was now a significantly shorter, tightly coiled afro. She was convinced we had cut my hair. I reached down to my scalp close to my temple and pulled one of the coils out to prove that in fact, all that had happened was my hair shrank. as natural black hair does when it gets wet. She breathed a sigh of relief, but retained a slightly puzzled look because I'm sure that she had never experienced hair that behaves that way. And clearly all she wanted to do was to make sure we were not up to the normal shenanigans girls do when they cut our own bangs or get gum in our hair. She took a deep breath, chuckled a bit under her breath, and ushered the three of us over to the kitchen counter. There were three plates. Two plates had half a tuna fish sandwich and a handful of chips and a small cup of iced tea. One plate had a whole tuna sandwich and two fistfuls of chips and a large glass of tea. Minding my manners, I sat at the plate that had the least. Susie's mom tapped me on the arm and said, no, Debbie, that one's for you. And she pointed to the plate with the whole sandwich, the two fistfuls of chips, and the large cup of tea. I sat at the high top chair in the kitchen counter for a few seconds and looked down and I noticed for the first time that I was a little bit bigger than Tamika and Susie. My belly sort of rolled over my swimsuit and theirs didn't. I went to Susie Meyer's house that day, a happy-go-lucky kid, living a life that I loved. In my neighborhood, the ice cream truck used to roll through, and when you heard the music, that sweet sound of random bells and triangles that somehow harmoniously formed a child's anthem of joy, you grabbed whatever change you had and you took off running. These were my greatest challenges at the time. Do I have enough to buy a fudge pop? I came to Susie Meyer's house that day, a happy-go-lucky kid, and I left there very different. I left her house on that day, fat, black, and poor. The ride home was long. It seemed much longer than my normal morning commute. My mother could tell something was off. She kept asking if anyone did anything to me, and all I could say was, no, mama. She asked, well, what's wrong? Nothing, mama, nothing's wrong. It was the first time in my life I ever felt pity for my mother. I didn't want her to know all I had seen and experienced because I didn't want her to know that we were poor and black and fat. 
I noticed for the first time that she was also a little bigger than Susie's mother. My mother was a wonderful, loving mother. They gave me and my brother the very best of everything she had to give. She was my biggest champion and my biggest cheerleader my entire life. In her eyes, I was the best thing since sliced bread and pockets and I could do anything. She believed in me in ways I didn't believe in myself. I wanted her and I to have the life that Susie had with that big house and a pool and a grand entryway. When I got home, my whole view of life had changed. I looked at the rusty metal fence with the broken latch as I walked up to my yard. When I finally made it to my room, I hopped into the top bunk and looked around. My room just didn't seem good enough. It was an ugly color blue and the walls were kind of dingy. There was no canopy bed, no lace trim. And I told myself there was something wrong here. Eventually that conversation evolved and there was something wrong with me. I spent the rest of the summer reading books and jumping rope. I did this by myself. I went way inside myself. I stopped playing with Tamika because I felt sorry for her too. She was too silly to appreciate that she, while not fat, was still black and poor. I only ate half my food for years. And in my house, that was a cardinal offense. Food was love. My grandfather was born the son of a sharecropper. They grew most of the food they ate. He said they only ate meat on Sundays. I tried to honor my family and do what I had always done before that day, but no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't shake off that tuna sandwich, two fistfuls of chips, and large glass of iced tea. I decided that summer, not out loud, but quietly to myself, that I was going to be the smartest kid in the second grade and was going to be better and do better than Susie Meyer and all those kids in Bowie. That next year, I barely spoke to Susie. We were in the same class, but I tested into the Talented and Gifted program and spent half my day with five to six other children and a special teacher um, that the school brought in to work with the select children in this new program. Who I became in that moment forward was smart and fast. I took great pride in always being the first one to turn in my tests and score 100%. Anything less than that would have me up all night studying my notes and beating myself up for not being the best. I excelled at everything. It didn't matter what it was, I was always on top. The bigger the game, the harder I played. If the game wasn't hard enough, I upped the game and made it harder. I'll show you, I'll show them all. That's what that little voice in my head said to me every day, and I lived by that. I went to Johns Hopkins. I double majored in natural sciences and public health, pre-med. I graduated four years, and I went right into a PhD program that I completed in two years and six months. In the midst of this, I had a beautiful baby girl and walked across at the, the stage at 24 years of age, pregnant, pregnant with the second of my three children. I was victorious. A year later, I took an assistant professorship at Johns Hopkins, and two weeks after I got my first paycheck, I went searching for and found my dream home, which cost nearly five times my annual salary. It was a 5,700 square foot, beautiful mansion. It had a grand entryway with a solid brass ceiling fan and brass chandeliers in several rooms. 
The handcrafted crown molding was done by the same man who restored the plaster moldings at the White House. It had a two-bedroom pool house with a fireplace. The day my bid was accepted for what would later become named would later be named the Holden Estates. I called my mother, who was working in a factory in Flint, Michigan. I told her to quit her job, and she did. On September 11, 2001, the tragic day of 9-11, I bought that home. My mother left that factory job in Flint, Michigan, and moved in with me at the Holden Estates of Baltimore three months later. She never went back to work the remaining nine years of her life. It took a lot to maintain that lifestyle, that house and all that came with it. The landscaping, the repairs, the maintenance, the heating and electric bills were upwards of $1,000 a month. But I did it. I burned the midnight oils writing grants and manuscripts and grading papers. I picked up extra consulting gigs. By any means necessary, I was going to win and I was going to be the best but it came at a cost. I suffered terrible headaches that no matter how hard I tried or what I took, they wouldn't go away. Less than a year into my dream job. Living in my dream house with my mom, my beautiful babies. I was diagnosed with a brain aneurysm. The same aneurysm that claimed the life of my father at 37, my cousin Yvette at 29, my paternal grandfather in his 50s, and my maternal grandmother in her early 60s. I had a choice to make, but I had blinders. I didn't understand what was behind this insatiable drive to perform, to be the best, to constantly prove that I was good enough. My mantra, I'll show you, was literally killing me. This was nearly 20 years after that day at Susie Meyer's house, and it was a memory I had long forgotten. I asked myself, who was I going to be in the matter of my own life? And how was I going to do what I can only describe as a calling without killing myself in the process. I took a hard look at my life. I looked around at my big, beautiful 5,700 square foot house with the 30,000 gallon in-ground pool, two bedroom pool house, 27 rooms, 25 front facing windows, and the big fat mortgage that came with it and realized I'd bought Susie Meyer's house. Only the bigger, better version. That poor, fat black girl, an upset eight-year-old who didn't know how to process 
which she'd experienced on that otherwise nice, warm summer day, was running my life. A heartbroken, upset eight-year-old was running my life, and it was killing me. It took me years to make sense of that day. I grieved the loss of my innocence and the blissful joy that only children experience. I read all the self-help books, did a bunch of seminars, took all the transformational workshops, and finally one day I stopped. I stopped and listened to that little voice in my head. It's the same little voice that I somehow let get louder in my moments of self-doubt. The same little voice that used to tell me I wasn't good enough or that I needed to prove myself. Well, on this particular day, close to 20 years, after that otherwise warm summer day at the swim party at Susie Meyer's house, that little voice said, you're all right, Debbie, you're okay. And for the first time since I was eight years old, I let that little voice encourage me. Maybe I was simply exhausted. Maybe I was so tired of trying to be what I thought I should be or could be. Maybe I just was tired of trying to prove to myself that I was good enough. I think I just tapped out because I was simply exhausted. I walked into the front yard of my dream home. I looked at my 25 front facing windows, my beautiful shrubs and flower beds, and I threw my hands in the air and said, Lord, I surrender. I just simply couldn't keep doing what I was doing for one more day. The people that know me know that I'm very intense. I don't do anything on level one. I wake up on 10 and at the end of the day, I go to sleep on 10. That's just me. It may not be you, but it's me. Don't hear what I've said so far, what I'm about to say and think, well, that's not me. I invite you to listen for you where you have said things to yourself that damaged your spirit, that had you lose track of who you really are. We all do it. We pretend it's what others say to us that has us hurt the most. Consider that's not the case. It's actually what we say to ourselves that does the most damage. Who you are for yourself will be the most important thing in your life and for your well-being. I invite you to join me in my big game in life to be unapologetically me. I invite you to be unapologetically you. You don't have to represent the black point of view or speak for all Latinos, Muslim Americans, or sexual minorities. Grant yourself the freedom to be. Take good care of yourself. Put your mask on first. You cannot be anything for anyone until you are first something for yourself. I take great delight in people not recognizing me because I decided at some point that hair is an accessory. Hair is a way for me to express my roots as the neighborhood hairstylist who at 12 made the snatchback the style that every girl in Seat Pleasant, Maryland had to have. I later made the asymmetric bob the style that every young woman in Flint, Michigan had to have. I truly do me. Now because I've learned that my contribution matters, it always did. I just didn't know. Susie was actually right. My hair is cool. 
And so are my unique contributions. Contributions that are not the product of anything other than my natural expression of myself in the world. I stand in the face of no agreement. I don't prove myself or prove my worth. No one even ever asked me to do that. I did that to myself. I speak my truth and I listen. I can be with almost any conversation because what others say to me or about me only takes hold to what I've already said to myself. I've learned to be kind to me and speak to myself in ways that honor, nourish, nurture, and inspire me. Harsh words have nowhere to land over here with me because there is almost nothing for them to stick to. I ask questions when I'm unclear without fear of looking foolish because I refuse to miss the opportunity to learn and grow and be better. Not because I'm not good enough, but because I'm actually committed to something bigger than me that requires me to ongoingly grow and develop. When someone asks me what's wrong, I don't say nothing. I'm okay if there's actually something going on with me. I give others the chance to contribute to, to me the way my wonderful mother wanted to contribute to me on that warm summer day, but didn't know how to let, but I didn't know how to let her in and help me process. I invite you to join me and be bold. Be bold in ways that make sense for you. If you wake up on three, be a five in that conversation with your peers or mentors when your inner voice says, this ain't right. Take risk in ways that make sense for you. You can always go back and set things straight, but you may not have the chance to go backwards and make the difference with someone. Second chances are never guaranteed. Know that you don't have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Your birthright is success and victory. It was God's plan for you. God helps those that helps themselves is a lie. You will not find that anywhere in any scripture. God's grace and anointing is without prejudice and you can't earn it. It is your birthright. And we do live in a world where fair play is not the rule. There is a myth of meritocracy in the world in that you get what you work for. The reality is you may work really, really hard and the world may not give you what is rightfully by birthright yours. This is where you have to ask yourself, who are you in the matter of your own life and our world? Who will you be in the face of no agreement? What will you do when despite your greatest efforts, you hit a glass ceiling or watch underperforming colleagues or cheaters sail right past you. I ask you to forfeit your right to complain about what's so and stand for what you are called to do and who you are called to be. To do this, you must be well. You must be whole. You must be healthy physically, socially, mentally, spiritually, financially. Your well-being is the most important thing in the world. You cannot be anything for anyone until you are something for yourself. Surround yourself with people who love and nurture you. Grant yourself permission to cry when you are hurt. 
Laugh really hard and as often as you can. Seriously, dance like nobody's watching. And after reflection, step out on faith and do what you know to do. Let that inner voice be your guide. And not when it tells you you're not good enough. That's actually not you. That's your insecure eight-year-old self who stopped running for the ice cream truck the first time the world didn't make sense or handed you a bag of lemons when all you wanted was a glass of lemonade. Listen to that little voice when it tells you this ain't right. Listen to that little voice when it tells you you got this. Listen to that little voice when it says you the bomb.edu. Let it be your guide when you decide to go for it. You are all the answer to every problem in the world. The fact that you are doing what you are doing is a testament to your strength, your tenacity, and your awesomeness. Not because you are better than any of your peers, but because you got a calling and you answered the call. Your greatness, your wholeness, your perfection is already there. And life may have lifed you and you simply don't know or recognize your own greatness. If you remember nothing else from what I share, remember this. You are whole. You are perfect. You are complete. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing missing. There is nothing absent. You are okay. Grant yourself permission to be unapologetically you and stand in your birthright. Let nothing from your past or present limit what you see as possible for your life and the many great contributions you will make in this world. Take good care of yourself and be kind to yourself and others. Grant yourself permission to be unapologetically you. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Deborah Verholden, and this is At the Forefront with Dr. Deborah.